science. And uh, it's great to have you with us today uh, on BCFM for another edition of Love and Science. I've been off about two weeks, so big thanks to Andrew Glester for holding the fort uh, last week. I say holding the fort, I mean, he is the co-presenter of the show, so uh, it's not like he's doing me a favour or anything, he's just doing, uh, doing his thing, but um, it's always uh, good to hear him. Um, I'm joined this week not uh, by Andrew, who's quite rightly uh, taken a week off um, because he has other commitments, but I'm joined by Ben Sykes, who's been on the show before. So I think, Ben, that qualifies you as uh, a friend of the show. Now. Thank you, Mark. You're officially a friend, a friend of the show. Um, and and we, we should declare an interest how we know each other, because I'm involved with the uh, science communication course at the University of West of England, and you've been studying that uh, very thing, haven't you? Science communication at the uh, University of West That's of England. That's right. Yeah, and has it left you scarred and uh, wounded? No, no, it's, been, uh, it's a world-class <laughs> course, for, first of all. And, and excellent, it, it, I excellent. Think, uh, I'll I hand over the money later. It's been an excellent experience. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear it. Thank you. Um, you, uh, of course, are on the show today because you've got a very particular interest in a project which has taken off, <laughs> we hope not literally, uh, as we'll see why <laughs> in a moment, choice of words, a bad choice of words, in the southwest. In That's fact, uh, I remember it being launched at the University uh, of the West of England uh, some years ago at a huge uh, gathering. Tell us about it. It's, it's the Bloodhound project. So that's the Bloodhound supersonic car project, yes, based um, out of their technical centre at Avon Mouth Docks, just on the edge of Bristol. And the reason uh, I'm here talking about this today is that uh, I was part of a small team on the Masters course who went down there to film at the beginning of April um, as part of the, the studies uh, in science communication uh, to produce a seven-minute film on, on the Bloodhound Project, which is now available on, on YouTube. How did your film go? Uh, very well, indeed. Uh, it's a, quite so, an experience. So th this was part of the course? It was. It was a full week's uh, editing and filming experience uh, within a team of five. Did you, uh, can you be said to have enjoyed every moment or were you pulling your hair out halfway through? I think as the, as the week wore on and we were meeting the deadline for the editing and, and finishing, I think there were a few grey hairs growing out, but, uh, mm. but generally speaking, a very worthwhile and positive experience. And that's what grounded me in, in the knowledge of the Bloodhound project. So, uh, so, so you, you, you picked Bloodhound as, as your topic, and, and that, that was the theme of your, of your film. Now, um, let's, let's just go back uh, to the very beginning to set, set the whole thing in context. Bloodhound is a... Uh, what shall we say? It, it's supposed to be an inspiring project it is. that's the that's the, the the core idea of it i remember someone talking some years ago when it was first being mooted was that we don't have something like the uh, kennedy's bid for the moon you know when he said we'll <clears throat> by the end of the decade we will we will put a, a man his words on the moon yes um uh, which was which that whole moonshot thing what was the, the Apollo missions and so on was a project which inspired generations of, of uh, engineers. It, 
this, it seems to me, is, is partly what's going on here, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost wholly what's going on here because we already hold the land speed uh, record, uh, which is a supersonic record, so that the next target for Bloodhound is 1,000 miles per hour on land wow. uh, and a new record uh, at the same time. But what Richard Noble uh, is trying to do with this project more than previously is encourage... Uh, research uh, and interest in STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering, medicine, mathematics. Um, so that's S-T-E-M-M <laughs> as it is now. <laughs> no, that's curious. And so I can, I can understand all about the, the physics side of things, the mathematics, you know, the engineering and so on. Where's the medical stuff come in? Um, the medical stuff comes in in terms of Andy's uh, physiology, I guess. That, that's the only sort of biological... So this is Andy Green, who's, who's going to be the Yeah, he, he has to put up with quite substantial G-forces in the mm. acceleration and mm. deceleration of Bloodhound. Mm. He's in a very hostile, sealed environment. Um, the whole project depends on his powers of concentration. It will make huge demands on him as a pilot. Um, do you know what kind of G-forces he's going yeah, to Yeah, as, as, as the vehicle accelerates up towards uh, the 1,000 miles per hour mark, he'll experience about 2G. Uh, and then as the vehicle decelerates after that, he'll experience, in fact, about three Gs. Now, he's a tornado jet pilot, so those sorts of G-forces are not uh, the types of G-forces that he will pass out at. So he's right. well-trained to deal with those. Doing uh, it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, so... The, the, I mean, I, there's so much I want to ask you, and I want to, I want to kind of get it in order before be, be, before I go on and ask you uh, about the uh, attempt on the land speed record itself. Uh, again, let's go back into the d distant past, actually, to when I, I was a child, uh, and talk about the early uh, speed records. What, uh, so what was going on? So I, th I think, well, the very first land speed world record was set by a Frenchman who, whose name is almost unpronounceable, so I won't try <laughs> on there. Um, would you believe it in was. 1898? And that was 39.24 no, miles per hour. That's extraordinary. <laughs> that was how long? Uh, uh, how 18, fast? 1898. 39.24 miles per hour. Wow. Um, <laughs> so if you then jump forward to when we Brits got in on the act... Um, First, there was Malcolm Campbell in the 30s, and then in 1964, Donald Campbell in Bluebird, um, who many of your listeners may recall, um, hit 403 miles per hour on Lake Eyre in Australia. Right. And he was the last Brit to hold it before Richard Noble, who I'm sure we'll come on to. Just to remind you, if you only just tuned in, the Bloodhound Project is something which is being developed uh, here in the southwest. Uh, it's uh, a program which is all about uh, a land speed record. We're trying, Ben, to get up to a thousand miles an hour. Is that that's the idea? right? It's been designed to actually achieve one thousand and fifty, which is Mark one point four. So that's speed yeah. of sound and yeah. a bit extra. Is that how you say it? Mark or Mac? I never know. Well, Mac, I think. M-A-C-H, um, yeah. People pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, ways. in different ways. Um, okay, so that's the speed, yeah. that's the speed of sound. But the, the, where we got to um, was, was that Donald Campbell in 64 um, was, was the last Brit before Richard Noble to hold the world land speed record. And then in 83, Richard Noble did it in Thrust 2, and he achieved 633 miles per hour in the mm. Black Rock deserts in Nevada in the US. Wow. And then he came back with a new driver, Andy Green, Wing Commander Andy Green, for Thrust SSC 
SSC standing for supersonic car, in 1997. Mm. And they did the first supersonic world land speed record at 763 miles per hour, which was Mach 1.02, again in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. And, and that's how we got to Bloodhound. So one of the things in, in my mind, I can't help this, is that you, you go back to 1964 uh, Donald Campbell, uh, attempt. So that's a land speed record. Yes. But of course, he's famous for a water speed record on Coniston Water in the, in, the, in the Lake District, which I watched on television as it went very badly wrong. It yeah. flipped up. Uh, in fact, they never found, or, or I don't know if they did subsequently find, but they, uh, they, they couldn't find the car uh, because Coniston Lake is a very, very deep, deep lake. And he died. Yes. Um, and I, I don't want to be macabre about this, but, but uh, there's a huge risk associated with this, isn't it? This is not just playing around. This is really taking your life into your hands. Well, it's pushing the boundaries of science engineering. That's the main thing. And so we're in unknown territory. But the entire Bloodhound team will tell you that safety is built into the design of this vehicle at every turn, almost obsessively, such that Andy's cockpit not only has electronic switches, he has mechanical switches which will shut off the rocket system and will detach um, the drive shafts from the wheels so that he can stop this vehicle under almost any circumstances at the first sign of something going wrong. So really, safety is is built into this. Okay. So the the project is to accelerate a car up to 1,000 miles an hour. That's never been done before. So it's a, all right, it's a big entry in the Guinness Book of, <laughs> of Records. But it, uh, I mean, we hinted to the, or we actually explicitly talked about this uh, just a little while ago, uh, but it's much more than that, isn't it? So, okay, big deal. We get up to 1,000 miles an hour on land uh, using uh, a technology, some of which hadn't been invented before, but has been invented for, the, for this project. We'll talk about that later. But what it, what, so set the project in, in the big picture for us then. What's it, what's it? Is it more than just a nice big tick in the Guinness Book of Records? It is. Of course it is. I mean, th their primary motivation is is to make this like a moonshot. You were describing mm. um, the Kennedy Space Center activity. Mm. And they want to inspire a generation of young scientists and engineers, and particularly girls. And I have to say, as a father of two daughters, that's something that hugely appeals to me. And, and they've got an entire team going around the country. We've got relatives up in the northwest who've had bloodhounds come to them. Mm -hmm. So they're taking this project out to schools. So if there are any school children who are picking up on this recording uh, at the end of today... It's they, not a recording. Be, this is likely, live. <laughs> they likely will um, be yes. very familiar with yeah, yeah. Um, the bloodhound team because they've been to a lot of schools yes. so far. Yes, absolutely. A heavy concentration on schools. Just uh, out of interest, how does that work? Blood, has, uh, Bloodhounds recruited, what, lots of volunteers to go and talk about? Is that, they is they that use it? volunteers. They've got um, an entire PR operation um, that enables them to travel around the country and, and do displays of model rocket cars, essentially. They're very captivating, very engaging, and it's been very well thought through. And, and it shows up in their memberships and, and subscriptions. So, so I think that inspiring of a generation could well happen yeah um because we still we still have less people going into engineering i mm, think than we mm, we did mm, and um mm. uh, uh 
certainly there's a tremendous need to have more women going going mm. into engineering. So, well, let's yeah. let, and, let's hope. And it doesn't take much to captivate the audience because no. everything about this project, from a, a science and engineering perspective, is absolutely jaw dropping. It's it's mind blowing. It's I, part jet, it's part rocket, and right. part Formula One race car. So, so this is what I was going to ask you about. So. Um, we, we said, as, as with the space program, all, all the way through the, the, the incredible Apollo missions and so on, um, we were inventing, I mean, human beings were inventing the technology to do these things we said, we said that we would do. Well, can you give us an example of the sorts of things that we've developed, we've had to invent, or, or problems we've had to solve so, uh, uh, to do, yeah, to do I, blood I, I think I think that a classic one would be the wheels of this vehicle, OK? So... The design challenges for travelling at a 1,000 miles an hour and staying one, in one piece are incredible. These wheels will be turning at, at 10,000 revolutions per minute or 174 revolutions per second. The force on the outer rim of the wheel is 50,000 times the, the, the force of gravity. Wow. Um, and, and to create a wheel that doesn't crumble under yeah. its own centrifugal force is a huge challenge, and they've done it through... Mm forged aluminium wheels made in Germany um, and these are the fastest, strongest wheels ever made in history. They're made under a 3,600 tonne forge. Uh, and presumably uh, they have to be light enough as well. Yes. I, mean, I, I imagine it's not too much a problem to create a wheel that's incredibly strong. The problem is creating a wheel that's incredibly strong and light. Yes, and they mustn't melt under braking um, yeah. in the later stages of the run when the calipers uh, engage. Yeah. So yeah. that's probably one of the great things I would point to that's, that's now, groundbreaking from an engineering perspective. Now, when the, when the uh, car begins, uh, talk us through how it gets up to 1,000 miles an hour. What, how does that happen? Okay, so we kick off with uh, the jet engine starting the run. So Andy fires up the jet engine, which is the engine from a Typhoon fighter jet. It's called an EJ-200, produced by Rolls-Royce. And he starts by getting that, uh, the that gets the vehicle up to about 230 miles an hour. And during that time, Andy is priming the rocket. And then once he's got to 350 miles an hour under the power of the jet engine alone, in kicks the hybrid rocket um, and gets him up to 1,000 miles per hour in a total of about 55 seconds, by so which time he's doing a mile in 3.6 seconds. It's just mind-blowing. Uh, when you say hybrid, what, what, what do you mean? So a hybrid rocket, this is relatively new technology compared yeah. with the the conventional rockets of old. So it has, um, in the combustion chamber, solid fuel, um, which is it's a form of synthetic rubber with a catalyst. And additionally, it has a liquid oxidant, um, which is, is the propellant and combustive agent. And, and the two are mixed as Andy is priming the rocket. And when they're mixed, the rocket engine fires alongside the jet engine and the two are therefore pushing uh, Bloodhound up to 1,000 miles per hour. The jet engine alone is not powerful enough to do that at ground level because the air is thick, the resistance is much higher than it is at 30,000 feet, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a third engine in this vehicle, would you believe? 
there is a V8 supercharged Cosworth engine <laughs> from a Jaguar oh, that, really? is, that is in there just to push the fuel around the rocket. Right, so you actually need an engine to push the fuel, fuel around the rocket. Wow. Yes. Uh, so it, it powers the fuel pump. Because it's consuming the fuel so and fast. And the important thing is there that it needs to generate enough pressure to get the um, oxidant into the rocket, and, and it's generating pres enough pressure to fill a bathtub with fuel in and, inside two seconds. And what kind of fuel is it using? Um, so it's the, the oxidant, the liquid part of the rocket, is hydrogen peroxide. Right. For any chemists out there, yeah, yeah. H2O2. Yeah. And the, the solid fuel in the combustion chamber is a form of synthetic rubber called HDB, which for the um, interested out there is hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene. Ah, uh, I never start the day without <laughs> it, actually. Let's le leave that there. In the meantime, however, uh, we've been joined, and I'm hoping very much that this is the case, uh, by uh, Hannah Ayub from the uh, Cheltenham Science Festival. Hi, Hannah, are you there? Yes, I am. Here. Oh, fantastic. It uh, uh, always delights me when the uh, phone connection works well. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with our phone connection. What, the, what's wrong is my ability to press the right buttons. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always glad uh, when it works. Um, Hannah, you um, uh, one of the people. I, th I think you're responsible for things like uh, children's outreach and that sort of thing, aren't you, at the Cheltenham Science Festival? Yes, so I lead on our schools and our family programme, and I also oversee the delivery of the whole programme, so making sure everything happens, everyone's where they need to be for this week. And, uh, of course, it's, uh, there's an enormous amount of uh, organising to do. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the, the Science Festival itself? I mean, what, for people who think, what on earth is a Science Festival? <laughs> They're familiar with music festivals, but what, what is a Science Festival? Um, so our science festival takes place over six days, so starting tomorrow, and it's really a celebration of the world around us and finding out about the world around us. So we have over 200 activities from shows for school children to come and watch you know, chemistry before their very eyes to workshops where school children and families can explore fossils and the magic of maths. Um, and we also have a lot of talks and shows for adults too. So this year, our main three themes are mysteries of the mind, our future world, so really gazing forward into the future, and music and sound, which is drawing on the expertise we have from our sister festivals, which include jazz and music. Yes, of course, because uh, Cheltenham, yes, as you say, is jazz, music. Of course, the literature festival is yes. very famous, which I think happens in the autumn, doesn't it? Um, Sorry? Yes. Which I think happens in the autumn, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, what, what are your choices for highlights for, for this year? A few highlights to count. Um, tomorrow night we will be launching a hack live on stage in an event sort of exploring what hacking is and how it works, which I think is very topical after recent events, including the NHS cyber attack. Um, later in the week, one of my personal sort of favourite events is going to be looking at animal language and whether we'll ever be able to communicate with the animals. <laughs> the um, Doctor Doolittle. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so we have um, a whale expert and a chimpanzee expert joining um, a linguist. It should be a great event. 
I, I saw um, Dara O'Brien is featured quite close to the top of your yes. uh, pro program, and of course he, he he's somebody who will draw draw in a, a crowd automatically, from not just people interested yes. in science. What, what's he doing? Uh, so Dara is going to be doing two events for us this year. Um, he's doing an event on fake news, um, and he'll be joining one of our guest directors, Ellen Sofan, who's the former chief scientist of NASA for that event, um, alongside a brilliant panel. And that's going to be really interesting and, again, very topical. Absolutely, um, yes. Fake, fake yeah. news is the big issue of the day, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And, you know, we, I think that one's close to selling out, um, if it hasn't already, in the last little few hours. Well, um, I'm going to ask you in a minute how people get tickets and things, but uh, tell, tell us some more of your your top picks. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I, I, I'll take it as read that everything is worth going to, but uh, <laughs> when, when you have, let's say you have limited time, what are the things that are going to particularly interest you? Have you got any more? Uh, what well, Dara's other event that he's doing is on Proxima B, which is sort of the Earth next door. It's a recent sort of planet that's been discovered and we'll be looking at whether it would be possible that there could be life on this planet. Um, I think, as you say, we've got limited time, so it's worth saying there is something for everyone in the programme, so you know, please do take a look. We've got chocolate, coffee, how to survive the workplace, so things that are relevant to everyone, even if you don't think science is necessarily for you. Uh, and uh, we should just tell people then how they how they book tickets. So, so, so the, uh, uh, let's get the dates right. It's starting today. Starting tomorrow. Oh, sorry, Tuesday. sorry. Yes, yes, it's starting tomorrow, and it's running through until. It's running till Sunday. Okay. So, yes, um, uh, and to get tickets, people can go to Cheltenham Festivals with an S dot com slash science. Or they can also pop into the box office, which will be up on Imperial Square in Cheltenham from tomorrow till Sunday. Hannah, thank you very much. We wish you the very best for the festival. I'm hoping to pop up there and uh, see some of it myself, so maybe, uh, maybe we'll bump into each other. But thank you so much for taking the trouble to uh, tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Malcolm. Okay, thank you. And that's Hannah Ayub uh, from the Cheltenham Science Festival. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Um, and uh, I'm joined this week. We, we don't have Andrew Glester with us, uh, sadly, uh, this week uh, because, uh, well, he's having a rest. He's um, got his hammock out and uh, he's probably drinking uh, gin and uh, just taking it really easy. And so we persuaded uh, Ben Sign. <laughs> I'm lying, of course, through my teeth about that. He's a very busy chap, uh, is Andrew. But hopefully he'll be back uh, uh, next week. Um, but Ben Sykes is talking to us this week. He's our guest, uh, talking all about uh, the Bloodhound Project, which is the challenge to get a car uh, um, uh, up to the land speed record of 1,000 miles an hour. And we've been hearing about how that happens, these various motors and jets and all kinds of things that are going to be involved. You even need, we were, we were saying just before uh, earlier, um, you even need a, a motor, a highly powered motor, to get the fuel into the engines because it's consuming fuel at such a, such a rate. Um, now, it's not... We're, we're still got problems, so we can get, them, get the machine fired up to 1,000 uh, miles an hour. But, of course, well, what are the, what are the worries about, about this? What could go wrong? So the main challenges to, to Bloodhound are keeping the vehicle in a straight line uh, and stopping it taking off. Right. Those are the two major yeah. engineering challenges. Yeah. Because, yeah. of course, at high speeds you generate lift. Yeah. If, if you have too much... 
um, aerodynamic um, engineering to keep the thing on the ground, the wheels dig in to, yeah. the, to the surface and you lose the speed. So the, what they call the trimming of the car is vitally important and, and, and keeping it in a straight line, that's where Andy Green really has his work cut out to monitor the systems that trim the car and make sure it's going in, in, in a straight line. Okay. Um, and uh, this thing about lift, of course, we mentioned earlier, Donald Campbell, that's what did for Donald Campbell, actually, wasn't On it? The, water, the blue, yes, bluebird actually it hit either something like a piece of wood or it uh, hit, a, a, they think, probably one of his own waves coming back at him mm. from a, a, an earlier pass, and that was enough to give it lift, and then the air got under it at such high speed and flipped it over. Now, the same problem is going to apply to Bloodhound. But even, How, but even more so. But even more so, because it's going faster. Because it's going through the sound barrier, in fact, and yeah. it creates a shock wave yeah. as well as air yeah. under the vehicle. Yeah. So before we talk about the track... What, how are they making sure that it doesn't flip? Because presumably there's a trade-off between... If you, if you have it designed so that it's being forced to the ground, then it, it's slowing itself down the faster it goes, yes. which, which would be a problem. Um, if you don't do that, though, the wind can get in underneath it and, the and, fl and, and flip and it up. So how, how are they managing that? So it's very carefully trimmed by computer, but it's not totally computer-controlled. So what Andy Green has in the cockpit is some readouts on the loading on the wheels. So he can tell uh, whether too much lift is being generated or too much downward force is being generated, and he can trim the systems or he can abort altogether the, the attempt so, right. so that these things don't happen. So right. that's that, and that kind of reinforces the point that safety is built into the design. Right, OK. Now, we talk about the track. Uh, so they've, they're going to South Africa... Yes, they, well, can't, they can't do this in Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> no. They're going to do some initial tests, no. hopefully, at the end of this year at Newquay Airport, just to get the engine systems going. But the actual attempt will be in South Africa on a lake bed called Hackskeen Pan, okay. uh, which is 12 miles long. Um, right. And it, it's, I think, being recognised as the preeminent place for land world speed record attempts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... Because there are some. I mean, if you think about it just for a moment, a thousand miles an hour, it doesn't take you long to cover 12 miles, does it? Yeah. So it's covering the length of four and a half football pitches every second. Yeah. Or a mile in 3.6 yeah. seconds. It's yeah. travelling faster than a bullet. Yeah. So theoretically, if Andy were able to put his hand out of the window, he could catch the bullet. He's not going to do that because he's sealed <laughs> in. But uh. <laughs> that's incredible thought. And and but you have to do something to the uh, the track, don't you? So, yes. so, so talk us through that. So the raw track was covered in stones, and, and and of course they have to have a smooth lake bed. So incredibly, Malcolm, they employed three hundred local people. Um, in South Africa. So this is close to the Botswana border, the yeah. South Africa-Botswana border. Yeah. 300 local people to pick up stones. Mm. And they picked up, over the course of three years, up, up to this point, they picked up 10,000 tonnes of stones to wow. create this um, proper smooth pan for the, for the attempt yeah. next year or, or, or the year after. Yes. Last thing you want is some animal... Uh, giving up the ghost, don't you, <laughs> on the track, 12 miles up, you know. Yes. So no, this is a really bad I place. I mean, they're almost removing any stone larger than a pinhead to make sure that nothing, really? absolutely nothing is left. I mean, chance. it's almost, it seems unlikely that 
the the track could end up being smoother. I mean, what, what you're saying is amazing. You know, if they're they're moving removing things as big uh, uh, big as a pinhead, yes. that's absolutely extraordinary. Yes, it is. Oh wow. Well, we we uh, we wish them well. Uh, how uh, involved are you in this now? So I um, I became a member. Um, yeah. As a result of going down and filming and being enthused about the project, so uh, yeah. so I, I pick up extra information. You get invited to um, events, and, and it's you know, the public can get involved in this way. And they have uh, open days uh, periodically down at the Avonmouth Technical Centre. So your listeners should look out for those. And, and um, I wonder if loads. Of, I wonder if loads of people will actually be going to South Africa. You know, booking tickets to actually see it. I mean, would that is that possible? Do you know whether, I, I think whether, so. whether you can actually um, go and be a spectator at the event itself? Certainly, when Andy Green um, achieved the first supersonic record in '97, there were a lot of obviously a lot of media there, yeah. but there were members of the public who made it out onto the desert to, to watch it happen. Mm. Um, yeah. But they, those that were standing incredibly some distance off saw a visualisation of the shockwave when it went through the sound barrier, which none of them were expecting. This was incredible. Not even the aerodynamicist expected this. They knew there'd be a shockwave when they went through the sound barrier. Yeah. But you can see it panning out at right angles to the front wheels across the desert. There's an amazing photograph in Richard Noble's book. Really? Of, of what, what does it look like? Like um, a shimmering? Or? Um, shall, I, shall I just... Get the book for you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. So Ben's making his way across to the other side of the studio, niftily pulling a book out of the. So th- this doesn't I'm not work sure how tremendously, how, tremendously sh- well on radio. I was going to say, I'm not sure this will be. But a, Malcolm, a, you, a haven't, radio thing, you but haven't seen this photograph. Um, so getting your sort of reaction to this. Um, I'll try will be not awesome. to fall over. Oh, wow. So. So there's a kind of light. So so behind it is is a track which resembles an incredibly thick vapor trail that you might get from the back of an airplane, and presumably yeah. it's dust and uh, all that sort of thing as well. But really close to it, there's a kind of a light which emanates. It's just light that emanates, as if the whole thing is illuminated by the uh, craft itself. Amazing. So they didn't expect to see that visually. No, no. They knew it would be there physically. But and that's a mani- actually... that is a physical, visual manifestation of breaking the sound barrier. Correct. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. I didn't know such things could happen. Well, look, uh, we, we say that this is a, a programme about science in the news and science behind the news. Well, uh, Bloodhound certainly fits uh, that because it's a happening project now. It's designed to inspire engineers. It's designed to do things like encourage more women to go into engineering. And rather like the space programme, the Apollo missions and so on, uh, it's trying to uh, develop or it needs to develop new technology in order to solve problems, to do things that we've uh, never done before. So a lot more than a bit of fun and a lot more than a a tick in uh, the box uh, to say we've broken a record. Um, But we do have uh, some other science news uh, in the news. And uh, so we'll just pick up on on some of those uh, stories now. I'm afraid uh, for anybody who works on this show, uh, the announcement that uh, Donald Trump uh, is going to uh, pull out of the uh, Paris uh, Agreement is a very, very depressing.
depressing one, um, and uh, but uh, probably uh, not too much of a surprise. It's interesting to see uh, the kinds of uh, responses uh, that uh, have come out. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., who I guess in some ways would uh, represent uh, Trump, uh, says um, he actually says uh, uh, that. Uh, Donald Trump believes the climate is changing and he believes pollutants are part of the equation. He knows that the US has to be responsible for it and that that's what we're going to do. Uh, that's Nikki Haley uh, um, saying that. She's the uh, uh, US ambassador to the uh, UN. Um, the president provoked widespread condemnation when he announced on Thursday of this uh, past week that the US would withdraw from the Paris Climate J uh, Change uh, uh, agreement. Um, but it's been quite interesting uh, because uh, uh, responses from around the world have really, uh, in their own way, become a challenge to the United States. Uh, India, for example, uh, where there's Professor Narendra Modi, uh, has vowed that his country will go above and beyond the 2015 Paris Accord on combating climate change, and he said that at a news conference uh, with the new French President Emmanuel uh, Macron. Uh, uh, Mr Modi described the agreement as part of our duty to protect Mother Earth. Loads of global leaders have criticised Donald Trump's decision to withdraw the US from the Paris Accord. Let's just say what it is, uh, since this is a science show, where well, we can do that. It's supposed to, the Paris Accord agreed to keep global temperatures well below the level of 2 degrees centigrade uh, above pre-industrial times and endeavour to limit them even more to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Um, by the way, uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, NASA has just put out uh, just this, this week uh, a, a map. Uh, uh, you can just go on the NASA site and look from, I think it's 1880, you can actually see um, how the climate has uh, changed in terms of temperature uh, across the world and how you'll see what happens in the early 80s, how it begins to suddenly increase uh, quite dramatically in uh, in temperature. Um, second thing the Paris Accord was supposed to do was limit the amount of greenhouse gases emitted by human activity to the same levels that trees, soil and oceans can absorb naturally, beginning at some point between 2050 and 2100. Uh, review each country's contribution to cutting emissions every five years so they scale up to the challenge and enable rich countries to help poorer nations by providing climate finance to adapt to the climate change and switch to renewable uh, energy. Uh, Donald Trump says that he's taken the move because he's putting the United States first. I think he's forgotten the United States is part of the world. Uh, but there you go. He's forgetting a lot of things. And indeed has one of the richest economies and can, yeah. can afford to yeah. sign the accord more than some economies that have signed up to it. Absolutely. And, uh, well, let's hope that he comes to his senses. I don't think there's a lot of chance of that, but may, maybe he will. It's fairly pig-headed on these things. Um, the Antarctic ice crack takes a major turn. Uh, Jonathan Amos wrote about this, amongst many others, uh, in the, uh, on the BBC. Um, there's been an important development in the big crack cutting across the Larsen ice shelf in uh, Antarctica. Uh, the fissure, which threatens to spawn one of the biggest bergs ever 
ever seen, biggest icebergs, has dramatically changed direction. Um, according to uh, Professor Adrian Luckman, who blogs about this, he's Swansea University's uh, uh, representative in, in this, uh, the rift has propagated a further 16 kilometres with a significant apparent right turn towards the end, moving the tip 13 kilometres from the ice edge. Uh, the car- They call it carving. I think, when you get a new berg, uh, iceberg, uh, it could now be very close, he said, so this is going to break off and uh, float off into the, into the sea, into the ocean. Um, uh, he quickly added that nothing was certain. The fissure currently extends for about 200 kilometres in length, tracing the outline of a putative berg that covers some 5,000 square miles in area, about a quarter of the size of Wales. Well, we've got a lot more... Uh, to uh, uh, talk to you about, but um, we're actually joined by John Ford now. Hiya, John. I'm going to see if I can put you on microphone now. Let's just see if you're there. Say something to me. Hello, something to me. Uh, (laughs) Five's on number five. Hopefully, yes. Yes. I think think you're there. There Um, So, uh, John, how are you? John's going to... Yeah, good. John, John's joining us for... Uh, well, John's uh, joining you, actually. I'm, I'm going to be kicked out unceremoniously. And um, uh, John's uh, uh, getting Bristol home after, after the news. Um, so what have we left out this week, John? What have we left out? Well, funnily enough, uh, linked to the conversation, which was fascinating, by the way. I uh, really, really enjoyed this. Um, apparently, on this day in 1940... We have to say happy birthday to the synthetic rubber tyre because ah. uh, Goodyear Tyre Company uh, presented it as a, a first all those years ago. I guess you're not using synthetic rubber tyres on on the uh, on the car. Uh, in the rocket, it's yes. based um, it's based on um, synthetic rubber that oh, right. aircraft tyres are used for. I don't think it's the precise same um, chemical formulation, but no, it's based on it. Ah, I know an interesting fact here as well. You know, climbing boots uh, when when people for rock climbing, they they use recycled rubber from aircraft tyres because when it gets hot, it gets sticky. So there you go. That's my that's my extra fact. Extra fact, straight off the top of my head. You have to wish happy birthday to the synthetic. Well, happy birthday, happy birthday, synthetic tyre. Yes. This day, not that long ago, 1995, we also have to uh, uh, congratulate uh, the Bose-Einstein condensate. Do you know what this is? No. Very simple. Oh, well, yes. First created. So, well, obviously I do, but I'm, 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 I, I, I'd like you to explain it. Well, it's, it's the state of matter of a dilute gas of uh, bosons cooled to a temperature very close to absolute zero. That is... Uh, Zero degrees Kelvin or minus two seven three point one five degrees C. This is very sciencey, isn't it? It um, is. It's basically the state where nothing exists below that temperature. Yeah, nothing happens at, abs- no. at, at, at absolute zero. I mean, it, it was created on this day in 1995, but interestingly, back in 1924, it was uh, the scientists Bose and Albert Einstein together predicted that that would be the case. But it took all those years to actually come to fruition. I mean, it's one of those mar- it's one of those marvelous things that when when the um, uh, you know sometimes the equations say something should be there. So that's what happened with the Higgs boson. The equations yeah. said it should be there, yeah. and then the people at CERN found it. Well, look, sorry, John. I was going to say uh, John's going to uh, be with you uh, to uh, get Bristol home uh, after the news. So stay tuned in. Uh, for now, it's been. A th- Big thank you to Ben Sykes, talking about Bloodhound. Thank you for being our thank guest. You, uh, Andrew and I are going to be back uh, with you uh, next week, and the news is coming up. <laughs>